Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. This week's Talking Business is brought to you by multi-award winning law firm McDonald Legal experts in the areas of dispute resolution and commercial and property law. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review our month of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number eight in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, March 24th. First, I'll be talking to Ian McAdam, the CEO of Capsify, one of Australia's leading software providers for enterprise architecture and innovation. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But now let's talk to Ian McAdam. Ian, in terms of your work at Capsify, you bring a broad range of skills. You were formerly at Salesforce and you actually helped them through a very, very difficult period. What are you going to do for Capsify? Okay, so, um, well, the Capsify actually has a a really good opportunity to transform in the sense that to grow into a a much larger company. I'll tell you a couple of reasons why is that at the middle of last year, it was very fortunate enough to have a, uh, a capital injection from an Australian business growth fund. And that's and that what that did is actually help set up a, a new strategy in order to be able to explore, you know, the, the, the beachheads that the company had, had formulated in the US with customers like American Express, Merrill Lynch, et cetera, and, and uh, customers in, in Europe like IKEA. But what it did find is, is that Capsify is actually at a, at a stage whereby in order to start drawing down on that capital, uh, exploring new new markets and expanding on the on the footprints they have, it, it's a great chance for for growth. What has also happened in parallel is that there was a search apart from uh, myself to to take over the the leadership of the role from Dr. Terry Roach, who was the founder and and certainly uh, set the company up beautifully with those with those great logos such as I've mentioned before. But also um, there's a new chairman uh, by the name of Andrew Barkler has joined at the same time as myself. Uh, Andrew, as more more recently, was the Chief Executive Officer at IDP Education. Prior to that, was at uh, SAP, Unisys, and and PeopleSoft, and also joining me uh, in this month as well for as the Chief Revenue Officer is uh, Tony Mascarena. So we're actually now putting, I suppose, a, a a new lens on the company with different leadership on all aspects, being a chair, CEO, sales, etc., in order to take the work, the great work that Dr. Terry Roach has done uh, over the last you know five to nine years to then take it to the next level. And, uh, of course, Captify has all sorts of customers in the US, uh, like uh, like American Express. Correct. And, and Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch, exactly. And, um, you know, the, the, there are a number of other big brand names that we're fortunately talking to at the moment because 
you know, the the concept of, of companies coming out of the post-pandemic, whereby there is a lot of siloed information that needs to be pulled together. You know, what Capsify is really good as a, as a business architecture um, platform, it, it takes those uh, disparate information, that siloed information, brings it into a, a common platform so that uh, business leaders can not only make informed decisions, but they can actually talk to the same numbers uh, that, they, that they're seeing, which they don't always do. Is that an issue? It is definitely an issue. And I, I think it's not just because we can blame the pandemic. I think it's always been an issue in the sense that as companies grow, you know, there is a whole lot of uh, different silos of, of information, of technology, you know, of, of de- deposits, of information that don't necessarily talk to each other. And, and that issue is is old, but it's also, it's it's just a byproduct of, of growth. Well, one of the issues with silos is that different parts of the organisation don't talk to each other. Exactly right. And, and well, this software helps to eliminate the misunderstandings and, and increases the communication. Once you increase that communication, not only you're actually helping you know, uh, employee satisfaction increase, it means that your your end user, your customer, actually get, has a better experience as well because they 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 can know that you're gathering that information in a timely way and giving it to uh, an experience that they expect. Well, how specifically can you get these different parts of the organisation talking to each other? Well, that's that's the beauty of this platform, Leon, is that you know it, it is a, a journey mapping pr- a process that is a way of planning out you know what is the art of the possible. And the beauty of uh, the uh, the platform is that it's almost like the spaghetti that's in the background that's been brought together to be able to say that, right, if we were to go ahead with this initiative or this market or this product, uh, that information can be drawn from all these different sources in the one place. And what it does is say that by pressing that button, this is thing's going to blow up. By pressing this button, this thing's going to grow by this amount of money. And that, that's really where the, the beauty of the, of the platform is. It takes an extraordinary amount of analysis, doesn't it? It does. And that's the beauty of, you know, the, uh, the work that Dr. Terry Roach and the team have been doing, you know, for the last, as I mentioned, the last five to nine years is that there has been an incredible amount of work that's been done in the background. And, and that's why I'm quite, personally very excited to be joining at exactly this time, because the work that's been done and the ability to be able to now start drawing down on those data sets, on those um, in, uh, on those industry plans, on those industry uh, focused solutions, is it's uh, it's it's time to really hone hone in and, and demonstrate the, the power of, of the work that's been done. What is Capsify doing in Australia? Where where it's, where, where is, what are its customers? Where are its customers? Yeah. So actually, it's it, it's quite broad. It's, it, it's certainly in public sector. There's a, a number of customers. There is customers in the financial sector. There's customers in health uh, in the, in the private health sector. And and more recently, we are we, we're, we're moving into into services as far as you know cybersecurity and stuff like that. I think the 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 opportunity for us, Leon, is is to partner better uh, with uh, global service integrators, uh, not just here in Australia, but but globally, because there is a a benefit for this for this particular technology to not only the practices using it to improve their ability to give advice on digital transformation or or transformation just generally. Uh, they will be able to improve their their practice practice work, and then also ultimately their 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 customers, their end users. So, look uh, in Australia, whilst we do actually have a, a number of industries that we're playing with at the moment, the the go to market is pretty much going to be pivoting towards partnering much more closely with these GSIs um, in order to be able to amplify the the the, the benefit that a, a tool that that Captify could do within their firms and, and obviously their end users. So the idea would be for Captify to partner with overseas platforms as well. A- absolutely. And and we actually have, in fact, I'll be heading off to the UK in, in a couple of weeks' time to 
to work with a, a, a GSI over there so that um, with a very large name brand that we are hoping to to go live within the next uh, two to three weeks. And it, it is, whether it's we're here in Australia or overseas, the, the, the problem is the same. And that, that's the, the, the beauty of us having demonstrated to one partnership that it can work on this large logo, then we, why don't you take that IP and replicate it, even though uh, a, a partnership is, is federated, it's separated out, the, the ability to replicate best practices is clearly front of mind. Uh, but the trick would be to convince the your your clients that that's in their best interest too. Well, sometimes the clients are, well, that's a very good point, Leon, but I also find that because we're dealing with large, complex, multinationals, enterprises, they tend to already be embedded with a, a trusted advisor being a, a GSI and the, the ability for the GSI to say, hey, this tool does work for these reasons. And the reason why you're going to get efficiency is these reasons is part of the, the, the value proposition that we have, Leon. And it's it's tapping into the existing, pre-existing relationship that is uh, you know, governed on a, on a, on a, on a cadence, often at board meetings. That, that we feel as though that, that that the confidence that we have that this product will work for them will then translate into the confidence to the end user. Because the key then is that your Australian clients are large. Yes, correct. Actually, all that all, it, really we find that we we can only play uh, in the in the in the large complex organisations, and and the reason being is in order to get the the best out of the tool, which is a very complex and 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 deep tool, is that you have to have a, a complex organisation, a complex enterprise, which therefore defaults to just large scale. That that's the way the, that these companies will get the, the best out of out of, of Capsify. Okay, and so they wouldn't have a problem with you partnering with overseas platforms at all. No, not at all. And and it, it's more about the fact that that once the 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 integrator believes in the power of what's actually going to be giving relevant, timely information, whether it's in one country or the other, it's it's that it's, you already have that existing trusted relationship. So what other innovations can you bring to Capsify? So look, one of the things we've just finished a strategy session actually this week, and one of the one of the open items and we're exploring at the moment is to move not just from enterprise architecture, but let's, why don't we move into government risk compliance? Why don't we actually move into specifically into the strategy here and a strategy quadrant? You know that there is there is the ability for us to take the 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 deep information that we've had that was really uh, specifically identified originally as as being enterprise architecture, moved into business architecture, that then moves into GRs and government risk compliance, and then other other areas. So look, there is there is a there is a foundation here that's very solid. It's it's on the back of some very intelligent men and women that have uh, built these data sets, and I, I do believe that some replication and and, and evolution of, of this can move into different se- in sectors. Well, that's quite exciting for Capsify, I would imagine. Quite exciting. And, and of course, strategy and, and risk are huge issues. It's a, it's something that will probably never go away, Leon. And and it's a, if anything, that you know, the pandemic has taught us, and, and even more recently with uh, some cybersecurity issues that, that the world is experiencing, not just here in Australia, but internationally, is that, the management of the risk of what um, large corporations have to have to play with is probably not going to go away, and the, the identification of what is an acceptable risk to a board and even to uh, an executive suite 
is 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 the key to be able to have the right information to be able to make that judgment call. Therefore, you know the value of what um, Capsify brings is that is the the right to be able to ha- make an informed decision for that risk analysis. And and the beauty of that is that it would involve so many people in your organisation. Oh, and that's what the, it's not just that, Leon. It is a lot of people, but it's then finally a lot of people talking the same information. A lot of people having the same uh, the same information that says that this result will happen if you if you press this button. I use that that term again. You know, it, it's 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 a lot of people, but it's then to start talking a, a common uh, a, a common information set. One last question: Are you using AI? Uh, we are actually we are just moving into AI now, Leon, and that's the other thing that we are exploring as to how much further we in our research and development team that we will will move into that sphere. Clearly, it's um, it's it, it is just something that has to be embraced by us, and it's and it'll be just part of the evolution of, of this of this great of this great tool. Well, Ian, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you, Leon. Likewise. Thank you, and let's keep in touch. Thank you. Now, let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, unemployment has gone down from 3.7% to 3.5%. What's your view about it? Yeah, it was a really strong outcome um, following a couple of weaker months throughout December and, and January. The unemployment rate down to 3.5%, 3.7% last month. It's one of the lowest levels that the unemployment rate's been at in the past 48 years. So it's a, it's a clear indication that the labour market is incredibly tight right now and continues to be tight despite the impact of high inflation and rising interest rates. The broader measures of unemployment or labour market conditions also improved. The underemployment rate down to 5.8%. That's the lowest level since August of 2008. And the underutilisation rate down to 9.4%. And that was the second lowest outcome in 40 years. So some pretty strong results out of the latest uh, Labor Force survey. What can explain why it was up to 3.7% last and why it's down down to 3.5%? I mean, one factor that we always need to bear in mind is that there is quite a bit of volatility in the, the monthly statistics. And so the unemployment rate can move quite wildly from month to month. And we need to bear that in mind when things go poorly as they did over the past couple of months with the increase in the unemployment rate, but also when there is a, a big downward movement as well, which has obviously been the case in, in February. There were also some seasonal impacts around Christmas that could have also led to a brief increase in the unemployment rate and a, a fall in employment over those December and January months as well. Do, do we see the prospect of unemployment rising? I mean, so some the RBA has talked about unemployment going up. What's your view about that? Well, there is certainly an expectation that the unemployment rate is going to increase in line with the expected slowdown in the Australian economy. Now, I do tend to agree with that assessment that the economy is going to slow and the unemployment rate is likely to increase. But I don't think we're going to see a sharp rise in the unemployment rate in the near term. And the main reason for that is simply that forward-looking measures of labour market demand remain really healthy. And I'm talking about job vacancies and job advertisements that are still well above pre-pandemic levels. So we're we're still in this labour market where if you lose your job, you can reasonably expect to find a new job pretty quickly. And it's a labour market where job seekers are are still spoilt for choice. And, And typically that isn't consistent with a spike in the unemployment rate. So if it does increase... I think it'll be relatively gradual over the, the course of the year, um, which could push the unemployment rate above 4% by year end. So you're saying all those factors mean it isn't consistent with a spike in the unemployment rate at all? No, not a spike. Gradual increase, yes, I can I can definitely see that. But for there to be a spike in the unemployment rate, something really has to fundamentally shift. We'd need to see job vacancies fall sharply, probably below pre-pandemic levels. 
for that to occur, you'd need to see about a 50% decline in, in job vacancies, um, which, which is a pretty sizable movement. And until that happens, it, it doesn't seem feasible to me that the unemployment rate could increase sharply over you know the course of a six-month period. The more gradual increase, the movement from 3.5 to 3.6 to 3.7, absolutely that could happen. But a jump beyond 4% to 4.5% to 5% uh, seems unlikely given the the current dynamics in the Australian labour market. What impact would that have on wages? Well, right. the continuation of this very low unemployment rate. Well, certainly if we remain below 4%, um, which I anticipate we will over at least the next six months, and that should continue to put a little bit of upward pressure on wage growth. It does appear as though private sector wage growth is headed for 4% or thereabouts, which we haven't seen since the global financial crisis began. Public sector wages are a little bit uncertain. They've certainly lagged the the overall wage recovery thus far, with both state and federal governments pretty keen to to keep a lid on wage growth um, due to all the spending that occurred uh, throughout the the pandemic. So we we should expect stronger wages over the next uh, six to to 12 months. But unfortunately, that's not going to be enough to match what we've seen with inflation. And so uh, adjusted for inflation, Australian wages are still going to go backwards over the course of this year. What does that mean in terms of the RBA? Well, the RBA is in a really interesting situation at the moment. Cash rate expectations have swung wildly over the past week, week and a half, um, due the collapse of the, the Silicon Valley Bank in the in the US and some concerns around some other major banks as, as well. Right now, the market is actually pricing in no more rate hikes. In fact, they're actually pricing in a rate cut by July, which is a rather stunning shift from the series of rate hikes that were anticipated at the beginning of the month. Um, so the market is certainly pretty skittish. They're very concerned about what they're seeing in financial markets, what they're seeing with regards to the banking sector in, in the US and, and in Europe, and they've adjusted their expectations accordingly. Now, there is little doubt that financial stability concerns will play a larger role in the RBA's deliberations when they meet. They're going to have quite a lot to to say about this. And they're going to need to balance those financial uh, stability risks against what is quite clearly still an overheated economy with inflation that is far too high and expected to remain quite high for the foreseeable future. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see where they fall on that and how their communication changes when they meet. Although we do have some issues with financial stability, what we've had uh, three banks going under in the US and Credit Suisse is only going because of the Swiss government. Yeah, that, that's right. And that is obviously very concerning. We, we, we know how risky that can be from our experience going through the global financial crisis and how quickly a a problem in one bank can spill over into problems across multiple banks. I think what is different this time compared to back then is simply that government authorities and central banks are much better at managing and responding to these risks than they were during the global financial crisis. Back then, you know, governments and and central banks were sort of making things up as they went along, trying to work out what works and, and what doesn't. Now we sort of have a blueprint for how to respond to that. And you could sort of see that with a very swift response to the Silicon Valley Bank collapse just recently. Now, uh, I mean, so the big issue is about the fight against inflation. I mean, that's still becoming quite, that's quite a big issue. And inflation's at that high, it does not come down that easy. No, that's right. The, the big, big economic risk here is that uh, high inflation becomes entrenched in expectations. It becomes what businesses expect, it becomes what households expect, it becomes what unions expect. And if that's the case, it becomes much more difficult to bring it down. So the RBA would be very concerned about letting high inflation run. And and, and so I think right now, while there is those concerns around financial stability, and the RBA will obviously have an eye on that, the fight against inflation should remain the priority. 
because high inflation, even over a, a relatively short period of time, can be incredibly damaging. I mean, you think about uh, wage growth right now. Uh, Inflation-adjusted wages are currently at their lowest level in 11 years. And Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So even just a, a 12 to 18-month period of high inflation, which is all we've experienced, has been enough to unwind more than a decade worth of pretty hard-won uh, wage gains. We, we can't afford another year like that. And I think that's probably going to drive RBA thinking um, in the near term, that concern around inflation, that need to bring it down to protect the household sector and to protect the overall economy. What does that mean in terms of the number of rate hikes? I mean, are we anticipating two more rate hikes? This, this is a great question. As, as I said before around market expectations, they don't expect any more rate hikes. The market thinks uh, the next movement is cut and possibly uh, as early as July. Uh, economists are more mixed in their opinions. You know, there's certainly economists that think that maybe three or four more rate hikes could be on offer. I tend to lean towards more one or two, with the RBA perhaps being done by mid-year. The economy is still running pretty hot. It's proving to be highly resilient. So I think there is still a, a, a big risk associated with this high inflation environment. I do think around mid-year, the RBA is going to pause hikes, at least for a period. I think they want to get a, a good sense of the impact that existing hikes are having on the economy. And I think that over that pause, there is a good chance that the flow of economic data will shift sufficiently to make that pause more permanent. Now, given some of the financial stability concerns right now, the RBA might decide to pause now. They might decide that the the risks are, are too great to continue hiking and they'll simply pause and assess what they've done now, in which case you know, you probably wouldn't expect to see a rate hike either again or at least not until the second half of the year. Um, so I think, you know, as is quite clear, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding RBA policy right now, and it's shifted quite significantly in just a, a week or two. Well, Callum, we'll be watching this quite closely, and thank you again for your time. Thank you, Leon. Need legal information or legal advice? Today's podcast is brought to you by multi-award-winning law firm McDonnell Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution and commercial and property law. For a free consultation on your legal matter, McDonald Legal can be reached on 03-9070-1107 or by visiting the website www.mcdonaldlegal.com.au. So what's happening in the news? Well, UBS has agreed to buy Credit Suisse in an historic government-brokered deal aimed at containing a crisis of confidence that had started to spread across global financial markets. The Swiss bank is paying more than US $2 billion for its rival, 
It will be an all-share deal and priced at a fraction of Credit Suisse's close on Friday when the bank was valued at 7.4 billion francs or US $8 billion. The Swiss National Bank is offering a US $100 billion liquidity line to UBS, while the government is granting a 9 billion franc guarantee to assume potential losses from assets UBS is taking over. The plan, negotiated in hastily arranged crisis talks over the weekend, seeks to address a massive rout in Credit Suisse's stock and bonds over the past week, following the collapse of smaller US lenders. A liquidity backstop by the Swiss Central Bank midweek failed to end a market drama that threatened to send clients or counterparties fleeing, with potential ramifications for the broader industry. US authorities have been working with their Swiss counterparts because both lenders have operations in the US and are considered systematically important in Switzerland. Bloomberg reported earlier. Authorities sought an agreement before markets opened again in Asia. UBS had earlier tabled an offer of about 1 billion francs, or 0.2 francs a share for Credit Suisse, which the firm had pushed back on. The takeover of the 166-year-old lender marks an historic event for the nation and global finance. The former Schweizerische Kreditanstalt was founded by industrialist Alfred Escher in 1856 to finance a build-out of the mountainous nation's railway network. It had grown into, into a global powerhouse symbolising Switzerland's role as a global financial centre before struggling to adapt to a changing banking landscape after the financial crisis. UBS traces its roots back through some 370 separate institutions over 160 years, culminating in the merger of the Union Bank of Switzerland and the Swiss Bank Corporation in 1998. After emerging from a state bailout during the 2008 financial crisis, UBS built a reputation as one of the world's largest wealth managers, catering to high and ultra-high network individuals globally. While Credit Suisse avoided a bailout during the financial crisis, it has been hammered over recent years by a series of blowouts, blow-ups, scandals, leadership changes and legal issues. Clients had pulled more than $100 billion of assets in the last three months of last year as concerns mounted about its financial health and the outflows continued even after it tapped shareholders in a 4 billion franc capital raising. And banking and financial stocks fell in Australia, London and across Europe on Monday after the emergency rescue of Credit Suisse by rival Swiss bank UBS failed to calm markets. In Australia, financials AXFFJ fell about 1.8% with all the big four banks ending in the red. In the UK, NatWest, Barclays and Standard Charter were all down more than 7%, while HSBC and Lloyds also fell about 5% in early trading before recovering some ground. European banking shares, as measured by the Stocks Europe 600 Banks Index, was down nearly 3% on Monday morning. Credit Suisse shares plunged 60%, while UBS was down 7%. The fresh jitters were partly prompted by the terms of the rescue deal, which saw holders of $17 billion of Credit Suisse's bonds wiped out, while equity investors were not as badly affected. And Amazon plans to eliminate 9,000 more jobs in the next few weeks, CEO Andy Jassy said in a memo to staff on Monday. The job cuts would mark the second largest round of layoffs in the company's history, adding to the 18,000 employees the tech giant said it would lay off in January, taking the total number of job losses at Amazon so far to 27,000. The company's workforce doubled during the pandemic, however, in the midst of a hiring surge across almost the entire tech sector. Tech companies have announced tens of thousands of job cuts this year. In the memo, Jassy said the second phase of the company's annual planning process completed this month led to the additional job cuts. He said Amazon will still hire in some strategic areas. The job cuts announced Monday will hit profitable areas for the company, including its cloud computing unit, AWS, and its burgeoning advertising business. Twitch, the gaming platform Amazon owns, will also see some layoffs, as well as Amazon's PXD organisations, which handle human resources and other functions. 
Prior layoffs had also hit PXT, the company's store division, which encompasses its e-commerce business, as well as the company's bricks and mortar stores such as Amazon Fresh and Amazon Go, and other departments such as the one that runs virtual assistant Alexa. And Fox Corps Chairman Rupert Murdoch is engaged to former San Francisco Police Chaplain Anne Leslie Smith, his spokesman is confirmed, which will mark the fifth marriage for the 92-year-old media mogul. Murdoch finalised his divorce from actress and model Jerry Hall in August. Murdoch and Smith, 66, first met in September at his vineyard in Moraga in Bel Air, California, and he called her two weeks later. Murdoch told News Corp-owned New York Post, which broke the news of the engagement. Smith is a widow whose late husband was Chester Smith, a country singer, radio and TV executive. On March 17 in New York, Murdoch presented Smith with an Asher-cut diamond solitaire ring, according to the Post. They'll be married in the Northern Hemisphere summer. I was very nervous. I dreaded falling in love, but I knew this would be my last. Better be. I'm happy, Murdoch told the Post. Murdoch's nuptials are likely to change the ownership structure of businesses when she holds stakes, including Fox Corp, the parent company of Fox News Channel and News Corp. Murdoch controls News Corp and Fox Corp through a Reno, Nevada-based family trust that holds roughly a 40% stake in voting shares of each company. Fox is currently defending itself in a US $1.6 billion, that's Aussie $2.4 billion, defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion has accused the cable TV network of amplifying claims that Dominion voting machines were used to rig the election against Republican Donald Trump and in favour of his rival Joe Biden, who won the election. Fox has defended its coverage, arguing claims by Trump and his lawyers were inherently newsworthy and protected by the First Amendment of the US Constitution. And avoiding the worst ravages of climate breakdown is still possible, and there are multiple feasible and effective options for doing this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have said. Ho Sang Lee, chairman of the body, which is made of the world's leading climate scientists, made clear that despite the widespread damage already being caused by extreme weather and the looming threat of potential catastrophic changes, the future was still humanity's to shape. This positive framing of a report that makes very grim reading was a deliberate counterblast to the many voices that have said the world has little chance of limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the threshold beyond which many of the impacts of the crisis will rapidly become irreversible. Finance would be key. The shift to a low-carbon economy would take between three and six times the amounts of funding currently devoted to green investment, according to the final section of the IPCC's Comprehensive Six Assessment Report, or the AR6, of human knowledge of the climate. IPC scientists and climate experts emphasised that this decade would be crucial, as decisions made now would affect the future of the planet for hundreds and perhaps thousands of years. And the nation's prudential regulator has begun asking banks to declare their exposures, in some cases daily, to startups and crypto-focused ventures following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and volatility at global lenders. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority has told banks to improve their reporting around crypto assets and provide daily updates to the agency as it sought to gain more insight into exposures vulnerabilities in the system. The increased supervision comes after startups pulled funds deposited with SVB, triggering its collapse and after Credit Suisse suffered outflows from its customers concerned about its profitability as it attempted a complicated and lengthy restructuring process. And Australian mortgage holders might finally be in for a reprieve on interest rates, with the Reserve Bank indicating it will consider a pause in hike at its next meeting. Minutes from the bank's March meeting, released on Tuesday, show the RBA board members acknowledged that the economic outlook was uncertain and monetary policy was now restricted. Members agreed to reconsider the case for a pause at the following meeting, recognising the pausing would allow additional time 
to reassess the outlook for the economy, the minutes from the March 7 meeting said. The considerations meant it would be appropriate at some point to hold the cash rate steady to assess more fully the effect of interest rate increases to date. An environmental lobby group, Market Forces, has accused five super funds and their leadership of greenwashing and failing to use their voting power to push big emitters to clean up their act. In a report published on Wednesday, Market forces accuse Aware Super, Australian Super, AMP, Australian Retirement Trust and Commonwealth Supercool of greenwashing. Market forces allege that the five funds overstate their green credentials to retirement savers, claiming they support net zero goals but fail to exercise their voting muscle to force dirty companies to clean up their operations. These funds are alleged to be relying on influencing fossil fuel companies, including Santos and Woodside, by engaging with management to meet climate targets. But market forces said the funds have failed to adopt or implement effective, active ownership practices across five criteria. The Environmental Lobby Group, which has previously targeted several retirement savings giants, claims these funds are legally required to have reasonable grounds to believe they will achieve their goals. And non-bank lender Latitude says a sophisticated, well-organised and malicious cyber attack remains active inside its systems and is not taking on any new customers after being forced to isolate some of its technology platforms. Latitude also revealed on Monday that more customers, including past customers and applicants for credit, could fall victim to the attack after it said last week about 330,000 customers had their personal identification stolen. The non-bank lender confirmed that Medicare numbers and copies of passports or passport numbers were included in the theft of personal information, affecting approximately 330,000 customers and applicants. In an update to the ASX, the lender said it was continuing our forensic review of our IT platforms to identify the full extent of the theft of customer information as a result of the attack on Latitude. The stock remains in a voluntary suspension and is not traded since Wednesday after the attack on three of its software vendors was announced before the market opened last Thursday. The shares will remain suspended for another few days pending any earlier announcement. The incident is being investigated by the Australian Federal Police. The update comes as a major cybersecurity conference gets underway in Canberra and following major cyber breaches at Optus and Medibank last year. Latitude has not said whether the attack has included any demands for ransom to be paid to prevent customer information being posted onto the dark web. The source of the attack also remains unclear. And the big four banks' exposure to the Australian resources industry has sunk to a decade low, and lending veterans say an erosion of technical mouse and risk appetite means the local banks will struggle to capitalise on the next boom in future-facing commodities. Data compiled by Bridgend Capital Advisory shows a big four Australian bank combined exposure to mining, oil and gas clients had declined by almost $25 billion since peaking at $64.7 billion in 2015. The decline has been particularly sharp at Commonwealth Bank, where the nation's biggest export industry ranks as just the 15th biggest lending market and the total committed exposure to resources has slumped from almost $17 billion to barely $7 billion between 2015 and 2022. The resources sector has slumped from 1.9% of the Commonwealth Bank's total loan book to 0.6% over the same period. NAB has been the most resilient, with resources exposure declining from 1.2% of its book to 0.9% over the same period. The decline has been driven by a combination of cyclical and structural factors. An era of high commodity prices has fueled miners like BHP and Rio Tinto with cash and reduce their need for loans, while banks have also deliberately reduced their exposure to fossil fuel producers. But the big four banks have also missed the boom in future-facing or critical minerals like lithium, graphite, hydrogen and rare earths over the past eight years because the opaque and immature nature of those industries meant local banks were not confident managing risks through futures markets and hedging as they do for traditional commodities. Australia's critical minerals producers have instead been funded by end consumers, shareholder equity, offshore banks 
and government lending agencies like Export Finance Australia, the US Department of Defence and Japan's Innovation Fund. And Victoria's wage theft laws are facing a constitutional challenge that would neutralise states' powers to bring criminal charges over underpayments if successful. Regional restaurant Macedon Lounge, the first business to be charged with wage theft offences, has applied to the High Court in a bid to argue the Victorian laws are invalid because they clash with federal laws governing underpayments. The challenge will have ramifications for other Labor government state wage theft laws, including Queensland and South Australia, as well as the Albanese government's upcoming criminal laws for underpayments. Victoria's wage theft offences took effect in July 2021, and the Andrews government set aside $17.5 million to fund a new agency, the Wage Inspectorate Victoria, to enforce the laws. However, the government was criticised at the time by the coalition and experts for wasting millions of dollars on laws that would be made redundant by upcoming federal laws or otherwise rendered unconstitutional. The Victorian Wage Inspectorate proceeded to hit the Macedon Lounge and owner Garov Setia with 94 criminal charges in November for allegedly underpaying four employers a total of $7,265 over a five-month period. The inspectorate took 17 witness statements over the allegations and produced 275 pieces of documentary evidence according to court documents. Mrs Setia, if convicted, faces up to $218,000 in fines or as much as 10 years in prison and the restaurant could be fined more than $1 million. Barrister Lee Howard for Mrs Setia and Macedon Lounge flagged Broadmeadows Magistrate Court last week that the parties had launched a constitutional challenge to the case. According to documents filed in the High Court by Mr Howard and Barrister Justin Burke KC, the wage theft laws and the inspectorate's powers to investigate them are invalid according to Section 19 of the Constitution. That section says when a state law is inconsistent with a Commonwealth law, the latter should prevail. And the time it takes for a couple to save a 20% deposit to buy an entry-level house has shrunk by eight months nationwide since interest rates started rising in last May as falling prices reduce the amount they need to stash away and improving wages and higher interest rates on savings bolstered their finances, a new report from Domain shows. But the portion of income needed to service their mortgage has blown out to 41%, a new record, sparked by the 10 consecutive rate hikes. Meanwhile, a separate study from the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, AHURI, found that it was virtually impossible for any 25 to 34-year-olds to save enough deposit on their own amid higher property prices and surging costs of living. Domain's analysis found that a couple buying their first home would now need six years and eight months to save a deposit on an average entry level house around the country after sharp falls in home prices slash the amount they have to accumulate. Since interest rates started rising, Home values have dropped by 9.1%, or the equivalent of a $69,983 discount nationwide, according to CoreLogic. Despite the marked reduction in the time it takes to save a deposit, the amount of mortgage a Sydney couple need to service a mortgage has ballooned to a new high of 51% of their income, a large jump from 31.5% recorded during the recent boom. In Melbourne, the share of mortgage repayments rose to 42.1%, up from 29% in 2021. The portion of mortgage repayments expanded to 29.8% in Brisbane, 35% in Adelaide and 45.3% in Canberra. First home buyers in Hobart now need to spend 42.1% of their income to repay their mortgage, 26.2% in Perth and 25.6% in Darwin. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to the to founder of Renovatio, one of the country's fastest growing health and wellness brands. Dr. Vincent is a food scientist and clinical nutritionist, researcher and health and wellness expert. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about how the Chinese economy is going with the reopening. This show was brought to you by multi-award-winning law firm McDonald Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution, commercial and property law. For a free consultation on your legal matter, 
McDonald Legal can be reached on 03-9070-1107 or by visiting the website www.mcdonaldlegal.com.au. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.